wild Victorianist and modernist. Wilde was born in 1854 and died in 1900, right at the end of the century, um, just a year before Queen Victoria. And there are many ways in which he kind of spans that area that we now know as the fin de siècle. That's where his, all his major works are published, from um, the first pu works published in the 1880s, his poems, his essays, journalism, um, very early plays, through to major works in the 1890s. So in that sense, he really bridges the gap between Victorianist and modernist. And in many ways, in, rather than just seeing him as a Victorianist, where the Victorian era kind of closes around 1900, it's much more helpful to think of him as part of a period that's now often recognised within literary studies, which is more 1880 to 1920. The way in which the 1880s and 1890s set up a lot of the experimentalism, innovation and so on of early modernism. And at the time, he was absolutely taken to typify fin de siècle, the end of the century, and everything it meant. Decadence, decay, corruption, exhaustion, degeneration, or conversely, questioning, innovation, liberation, expansion, experimentation, exoticism. Every, a huge number of different artistic schools from, in some ways, going all the way back to the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and the so-called fleshly school of poetry, all the way through to French symbolism, aestheticism, decadence, um, the kind of new drama that follows Ibsen and so on. Wilde epitomised this period both for his admirers and for his detractors. So an enormously useful text for kind of illuminating his detractors, those who saw in Wilde a great danger and a different kind of decadence. Um, really useful text is the German Max Nordau's Entartung. Entartung being translated as degeneration. It was written in 1892, translated into English in 1895. It went through eight editions in the first three years after its publication in 1895 in English. So it's hugely influential and hugely popular. And what Max Nordau offers in Degeneration is a condemnation of all new movements in art as, and new movements in society as symptoms of a social and indeed racial degeneration. And that's racial degeneration as in a degeneration of the human species, the whole human race, um, and particular the kind of Western civilized human race. So this is very much post-Darwin, and the idea of the evolution of species, but what he's seeing is the danger of a degeneration, an evolution that is not some kind of Spencerian version of endless improvement and perfecting of the human race, but rather becoming cruder and, you know, it's seen in things like the masculinizing of women, you know, the new woman, um, the feminizing of men in the forms of the kind of aestheticizing and so on. And what you've got within Entartung within degeneration is wild offered as a, as a sort of type of this, a perfect classic example of it. So Nordau inveighs against this genetically transmitted decay and physical degeneration and moral degeneration, which he sees as equally identifiable in the criminal in, and the artist, in the so-called mentally defective and in the genius. They're all unnatural deviations from a healthy norm. So Max Nordau defines the fin de siècle. It means a practice 
practical emancipation from traditional discipline, which theoretically is still in force. To the voluptuary, this means unbridled lewdness, the unchaining of the beast in man. To the withered heart of the egoist, disdain of all consideration for his fellow men, the trampling underfoot of all barriers which enclose the brute greed of lucre and lust of pleasure. To the contemner of the world, it means the shameless ascendancy of base impulses and motives, which were, if not virtuously suppressed, at least hypocritically hidden. To the believer, it means the repudiation of dogma, the negation of the supersensuous world, the descent into flat phenomenalism. To the sensitive nature, yearning for aesthetic thrills, it means the vanishing of ideals in art and no more power in as accepted forms to arouse emotion. And to all, it means the end of an established order which, for thousands of years, has satisfied logic, fettered depravity, and in every art matured something of beauty. So this is Nordau saying this is what's happening in every way to Western civilization, and as it, within that book he attacks all sorts of modern movements in art. So Zola's naturalism, Wagner's.、Um, Music and operas, the open air painting of the impressionists, the poetry of the symbolists—all of these、um, are a kind of degeneration of traditional artistic forms. And the example he offers of healthy art is wonderfully、um, musical med- melodies, slapdash farces, and, and when it comes to、um, fine art, paintings depicting Munich beer houses. These are all offered as an example of healthy art, very much. Popular art,、um, and what he's most interested in is this idea that underlying this is a deep-seated belief in the benevolent force of tradition, and the importance, the healthy importance of the norm, of the average, of orthodoxy, the idea that it's actually within the norm, within the average, that the health of the race lies. So tradition and being conventional and conforming. Becomes enormously important, and any deviation from this type can spell disaster. Whether it's deviation towards the genius, or towards the criminal, or towards the idiot, all of those are pulling the race out into these unhealthy extremes, which will become exaggerated. And it's also fixed in this idea that what you're transmitting from generation to generation is not just genetic, but within behaviour. That the the genes will be altered by behaviour, and then it will move further and further to extremes,、uh, until the human in, human individual becomes incapable of fulfilling their functions in the world. So some kind of sterility lies at the end of this, both from deviating from proper femininity and proper masculinity, but also if you do too much innovating and individualism. As you can tell, Wilde's doctrine of individualism stands absolutely counter to this, and that's the use of Nordau as explains the ways in which Wilde's doctrine of individualism is actually very closely in conversation with very, very central <laughs> ideologies of the times, and how dangerous in many ways it was. So Wilde's doctrine of individualism is absolutely about rejecting the standards of one's age, about thinking for yourself. About cultivating your own essential self, and in that sense, diametrically opposed to Nordau's beliefs. So, in *Degeneration*, Nordau devotes almost an entire chapter to Wilde, and he also types him under. So that、um, a lot of 
degeneration is set up as one of those absolutely classic end of the 19th century texts where everything is put into a kind of genus and species. It's all categorised. Um, and Nordau can stand alongside people like Cesare Lombroso, who in his um, very influential book, Criminal Man, does all the different categories of criminal, all of whom can be recognised and typed, including by the shape of their earlobes or the size of their craniums. So there's very much this idea that you can identify the type and categorise them. So Wilde is filed under egomaniac. Um, and part of the way in which this is manifested, the way in which it's di he's diagnosed as part of this um, group by Nordau, is by his desire to dress unlike other people, which is a sign of a kind of pathological madness, a kind of egotism, lack of self-control gone mad, indubitable proof of his central moral perversion. And really important, the date at which Entartum was written, 1892. It's three years before the Wild Trials. So in that sense, what... Max Nordau is responding to in Wilde is very much the doctrines. It's not the idea that Wilde is some kind of version of sexual degeneracy because he can identify his homosexuality. It's very much about everything else about Wilde. Certainly the way in which Wilde is challenging all sorts of very you know, specific gender divides, but it's not a specific sexual attack. That's not what's being seen specifically as dangerous about Wilde. So in this sense, it's very clearly the very fact that Nordau will spend some 20 pages on the subject of Wilde and how he dresses and what he does with his art and what he argues in his essays and so on, shows how far Wilde epitomised what was threatening and new at this point. The challenge of the new to orthodoxy. It's also interesting if you think about the kind of typing that Nordau's doing, this categorising of individuals and artists. Importantly, think about the ways in which Wilde with his idea of the performed self, with his idea of the mutability of the self and so on. Everything I was saying about what he's sort of performing within De Profundis and so on last week, there are many ways in which a lot of Wilde's doctrine of individualism, but also his challenge to the idea of any simple division between self and mass, between truth and lies and so on, all his resistance to categories is again absolutely contrary to that kind of late 19th century obsession with typology and so on. So my aim in this lecture is to place Wilde not only both backwards within 19th century discourses, but also forwards within 20th century development of ideas and artistic movements. So pretty much all of Wilde's works are very, very closely located, very much in conversation with 19th century literary genres. So for example, his poems actually faced huge number of accusations of plagiarism because they were so closely tied in in style and subject matter to works of the late Romantics, works by, also works by Swinburne, by Keats, by Rossetti and so on. But if you come to his plays, for example, each of them are in conversation with different contemporary dramatic genres. So, for example, of woman of no importance and Lady Windermere's fan are within the fallen woman genre, the one that's about the woman's sexual past being discovered and the question of how she should be expelled from society or judged or punished. Um, in the case of um, importance being earnest, it's very much in conversation with Victorian farce. So very close to plays like W.S. Gilbert's Engaged or Sweethearts, um, to Pinero's farces like Magistrate and so on. There are heavy elements of melodrama within his plays, and he's in, in conversation with Victorian melodrama in that sense. And even his really early plays, 
the Duchess of Padua, which in one sense is sort of full of five-act verse drama, is looking back to works by people like Tennyson and Browning and so on, and also um, people like Victor Hugo and his drama and so on. Um, also, Vera or the Nihilist, another of his early plays, there was actually a whole genre of Russian Nihilist plays that were hugely popular at the beginning of the 1880s. So in that sense, each of his plays can be kind of located within a sort of dramatic genre, but not so much located in it as in conversation with it, in conversation with its conventions and audience expectations within that genre. In the same way, think about Dorian Gray, how far it's within that genre of late Victorian Gothic, but also it's the idea of doubles and what so many of those works are doing with doubles, right the way back to Frankenstein, but going through to things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And also remember, it was first published in Lippincott, which was where Sherlock Holmes, the Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories were first published. Um, so The Sign of Four comes out in an issue right next to Picture of Dorian Gray. Think about that conversation and what that does to the novel. Just as also think about what it does with the idea of selling your soul. Um, the pact over the soul, going back to Dr. Faustus, also going through things like Maturin's um, Melmoth the Wanderer and so on. There are a whole load of texts that it's in conversation in that sense. His short stories, or do you call them children's stories? All sorts of questions about they're obviously in conversation with Irish folk tales, with the growth in specifically for children um, stories written at the end of the 19th century, with fairy stories, um, but also with... <laughs> Biblical parable are kind of mixed in there. All sorts of different genres. And the question of which genre you fix them in massively affects how you read them and how you're understanding them. His essays, collected together later on, his literary essays, collected as intentions, is the title. A wonderfully difficult, sort of tempting title, which in itself references Walter Pater's collection of essays, Appreciations. So the very title indicates a kind of conversation with genre. They themselves part of the periodical press, engaging with a huge number of contemporary debates, as I'll go through. Now, this idea, of it, I think it's one of the keys to studying Wilde and looking at what Wilde's doing, is to put his works in conversation with other contemporary works, to see them as part of a longer-running debate. And that comes right down, both the macro of what he's doing as a whole with his works, but also the micro, down to the small detail of how he uses language. So one of the things that Wilde's best known for are phrases like divorces are made in heaven. Drink, cur oh, sorry, work is the curse of the drinking classes. Um, disobedience is man's original virtue. Now, the fact that these look like to lots of the kind of critics who were, uh, who were not admiring of Wilde, they look like cheap tricks. All you do is take a well-known phrase or a cliche and turn it on its head. And they complained that you could turn these out by the dozen. It's terribly, terribly easy, all these critics complained. Um, and it gets called wit, and actually we could all do it. Um, I really like Bernard Shaw's response to this complaint that it's terribly easy to do, where he says in his review of An Ideal Husband, Mr Oscar Wilde's new play at the Haymarket is a dangerous subject because he has the property of making his critics dull. They laugh angrily at his epigrams like a child who has been coaxed into being amused in the very act of setting up a yell of rage and agony. They protest that the trick is obvious and that such epigrams can be turned out by the score by anyone light-minded enough to condescend to such frivolity. As far as I can ascertain, I am the only person in London who cannot sit down and write an Oscar Wilde play at will. 
The fact that his plays, though apparently lucrative, remain unique under these circumstances says much for the self-denial of our critics. In other words, it's not that easy, because if it were, you'd all be doing it, because it makes lots of money. Now, when Wilde turns those phrases on their heads, he's not just, therefore, playing a cheap trick. It's not just a case of playing, let's reverse every cliché. Those sayings, things like divorces are made in heaven, work is the curse of the drinking classes, each of those reversals, the fact is the sayings work turned upside down. Reverse them and they still make sense. But they're always, the, the, the fact that you're aware of them as a reversal of a more familiar phrase means they're constantly in tension with it. They're in conversation with the original, but also they're showing up the assumptions that underlie the original. So, work is the curse of the drinking classes is an obvious reversal of drink is the curse of the working classes. Flip it around and it reveals how much the work, phrase working classes is they're not functioning as a descriptor, as a kind of neutral term to describe something. It's actually reducing that to their function. So a whole load of people, their function becomes to work and drink is like a kind of, you know, grit in the machine that's stopping it working properly. Wild reverses it and you get a sense of the people's own perspective on what their lives might be about. Do you see what I mean? So it's it sort of in that flip, it's in conversation with it, but it also reveals a whole set of assumptions and ways of thinking. Just as divorces are made in heaven um, is an obvious one about how far divorce laws loosened up and made or available in 19th century, but also for those who are desperate for a divorce. Actually, it's not a case of marriage being sacred and God-given necessarily through the 19th century. There's a sense in which perhaps divorce is too. Um, and then things like disobedience as man's original virtue. It's an ob obvious flip of you know, the, the idea that obedience is man's original virtue, but it's also a crystallisation of all of Wilde's arguments in essays like The Soul of Man Under Socialism about the importance of protest, the importance of challenging accepted morality. Think about disobedience is man's original virtue in relation to civil disobedience in things like the campaign for the suffrage, in things like in the 1960s civil rights protests in the 19th and so on. It's those kind of things, they're disobedience, but they're also a challenge to establish morality. And a lot of what Wilde's looking at there is the idea that progress is this sort of process of challenging established morality to establish a new and hopefully better morality. So in that sense, the idea that disobedience is man's original virtue makes perfect sense within a different kind of moral system. Yeah? So it's that thing. Look for what Wilde's doing in microcosm. Now, all of those are kind of dependent on the idea. That's this idea that on, in macro, what Wilde's writing is so often the real sense of it lies in contemporary debates, how far his works are engagements in those debates, and that new layers of meaning and understanding and power come out of them once you insert them into those debates. And you can understand what Wilde's engaging with and arguing with. Now, give an example of this. The Soul of Man Under Socialism. I think it's a really wonderful essay by Wilde. It was first published in the fortnightly review in, eight, in February 1891. <coughs> Within the Solar Man Under Socialism, he advocates socialism as the only true way to individualism. 
So he argues that under the current capitalist system, late 19th century capitalist system, the ills of the capitalist system lead not only to extreme poverty for many and enslavement in the heavy drudgery of long hours degrading work, where the few live off the products of that work, he argues further that the enslavement, the lack of individualism in that society goes all the way through to the rich. So those who are well off still get their lives marred by the sight of poverty around them. And within that society, worshipping wealth and belongings, people have lost sight of being, of, in one sense, more spiritual values, in another sense, whichever values they wish to go for. There's a sense in which the whole system, the imposition of power, corrupts those who impose the power as much as those it's imposed upon. So he's arguing that this is what you get through a system of control and capitalist control and violence and all the rest of it, and possession, money and the commerce and so on. And he argues instead, not for state socialism or communism, but for a form of anarchism. So one in which there are no laws whatsoever, in which you disperse all forms of authority. So you get rid of the legal system and the penal system, but you also get rid of the family. You also get rid of private property completely. Um, and it's a very Wildian essay. So again, on this kind of quoting and reversing things, um, Proudhon had declared that property is theft. Wilde declares that property is simply a nuisance. So again, it's that kind of being in dialogue with another thing. And that Wilde, within the essay, he does actually advocate. So it's the getting rid of all forms of authority, all notions of duty and so on. Um, he wonderfully, he says, you know, not a case of state socialism, because that, again, imposes um, authority upon everybody. It enslaves in another way. But he does wonderfully airily say, everybody shall have everything they need. The state shall sort of produce things and everybody will get what they want. Don't know how, but it'll happen. Um, and he goes on to say he absolutely recognises this is entirely utopian. Saying, is this utopian? A map of the world that does not include utopia is not even worth glancing at, for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing. And when humanity lands there, it looks out and seeing a better country, sets sail. Progress is the realisation of utopias. And he further says, if it were practical, that would mean it was practical because it fitted in with the way society is now. And the whole value of it is it doesn't. Now, it's very easy from that to kind of dismiss the essay as therefore visionary, impractical, whimsical, merely a kind of jeu d'esprit, which actually many of the reviewers did at the time. So you'll find reviews at the time that said, well, if he meant this seriously, oh my God, it'd be dreadful. But obviously it's just a joke. Actually, that very, which at the point now, you can look at it and dismiss it as simply airy-fairly, visionary and utopian. Actually, that whole discourse of utopian versions of the future was a very, very strong political discourse at that time. Utopian's anarchy was a strong influence on late 19th century politics. And Wilde's essays, you can absolutely see as a very informed engagement with a lot of the principles that were being debated in a lot of political writing at the time. So you can see a debt within the soul of man as a socialism to William Morris and his utopian vision, um, News from Nowhere. You can see the influence of Mikhail Bakunin and Prince Paul Kropotkin in there. Um, as I said, you can see references to Proudhon. You can look at, there's also a line of the Taoism of Chuang Tzu, whose work he reviewed. He's, very sort of, he's an ancient Chinese sage, a Taoist sage, who Wilde reviews his writings. And that's another influence sort of running through the soul of man under socialism. It's a vision 
very close to William Morris's political vision, and very few people dismiss Morris as therefore unimportant and so on because of the utopianism within it. And it's also got a lot of very practical and of-the-moment revolutionary politics within it. So there's overt support throughout the essay, quite direct support, for the Russian nihilists. So those are revolutionaries in protest against Tsarist rule in Russia. Now, if you look at contemporary newspaper reports in Britain at that time, there's some sympathy for the suffering of the, of the Russian people under Tsarist rule, oppressive totalitarian rule, but there's absolute fear of the Russian nihilists. Any kind of revolution is something that scares the pants off the British public at that point, or the British establishment. <laughs> um, you get it all the way through to, you know, Lady Bracknell's wonderful thing about to be born or at any way to bread. Sorry, I have to do that Edith Evans thing. To be born or at any way to bread in a handbag seems to me to display a contempt for the ordinary decency of the family life that reminds one of the worst excesses of the French Revolution. <laughs> and we all know what that movement led to. <laughs> And instead of it, sorry, I have to sort of wobble my jowls then, like Edith Evans does in that brilliant film of it. Um, in that sense, there's a what Wilde's doing there is mocking that fear of revolution itself, because he's actually allying himself absolutely clearly with armed insurrection behind the Russian nihilists. And in that sense, the essay is absolutely part of a kind of totally serious, in many ways, an important intellectually valid, politically engaged discourse at the time and debate. Um, the essay is not just Victorian in its politics. It's obviously Victorian as well as being part of that popular <coughs> periodical press. As I said last week, Wilde was expert at his engagement with that popular press and the whole medium of publicising and self-publicising and so on. Everything from his lectures, his um, touring with Doily Cart, his journalism, huge amounts of journalism and a whole range of periodicals through the 1880s, even editing The Woman's World, having his photographs taken by Cerrone and so on. Now, he's also very canny. This is one of the things that, that I think has become a kind of issue among wild scholars in about the last sort of, I don't know, at most 10 years, which is the way in which there's lots and lots of detail now available through great scholarship by um, Josephine Guy and Ian Small on Wilde's negotiation about his contracts how to get copyright on his um, works, but also how to get the maximal money out of what he's writing. And for some people, this equals he's therefore not politically engaged because he's very good at making money, therefore that's what he must be. Now, nobody says that of George Bernard Shaw, who's famous as one of the most engaged, politically engaged writers at that time, who similarly is trying to work out, just as Wilde did, how to get percentage of box office returns for the plays he writes and enormously involved in the establishment of the Society of Authors and trying to get maximal um, royalties and, ma and the best possible copyright on their work. So one of the interesting things is where money and the individualism of the artist, the freedom of the artist, come together. So the question about how to resist a marketplace that would like to dictate what you can write, at the same time as exploiting a marketplace to make enough money to give you some kind of independence. So there's an interesting and complex negotiation going on there. And different critics have ended up not necessarily simplistically saying he's trying to make money, therefore that's all he's interested in, but how far he ends up falling into playing back to the marketplace what they want rather than challenging it. So that whole question about how he's working with genre, how far he's, how he's working to a popular readership but not necessarily giving them what they expect. It's quite a complex and subtle relationship. And it's one that, importantly, you want to think about the way that aestheticism relates to that. So, 
aestheticism as a protest against utilitarianism, market value, and so on. So exactly what's expressed in the preface to Dorian Gray. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. The moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything, even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are to the artist materials for an art. All art is quite useless. Now, time and time again, I've had students take these as though they are dictates, as though they are absolute statements. All art is quite useless. At which point, said students then argue back that actually this, this art happens to serve this purpose and therefore it's not useless. So the three-volume novel can form a very good doorstop. Um, you could light a fire with a sonnet. You could, I mean, the, it, no art can manage to be... Obviously, there are logical flaws in that, in that it's very hard to dictate that your art shall be useless. What Wilde is not doing is offering these as instructions, as dictates, as absolute statements. What those statements do is defy, reject any other, other way of valuing art. So to say all art is useless is a way, it's a way of rebutting art is to be judged by its usefulness. Okay? It's a rebuttal of utilitarianism. It's a rebuttal. All of those, put those two together. Look at the preface to Dorian Gray. And it's a rebuttal of the idea of, that art is to be valued by its commercial value, its market value, by its educative function, by the idea that it makes you better people, by the idea that it enlarges your sympathies, or the idea that it's the function of, of cementing together civilization, of any of the things, for example, that Nordau believes art ought to be doing. Okay? Art is to be judged by aesthetic criteria alone. Okay? That's what art world is offering. So aestheticism is art for art's sake. Like dandyism with its emphasis on style and not usefulness and so on, it's a way of responding to that heavily commercialised marketplace. It's a way of responding to a demand for art to be morally good and improving and all the rest of it, or to be functionally useful. It's one that clear space for art to be valued for itself in a, as a different way, not as a soapbox, not as a moral vehicle. And that fits in with Wilde's constant throughout his work, sort of mockery of the idea of art as a simple educative model. Um, this idea of the, the idea of sort of moral improvement through art, through things like poetic justice. The good ends happily, the bad unhappily. That is what fiction means. Um, it reduces the whole of poetic justice, the idea that that teaches you about good and bad, to one kind of wonderfully you know, compressed, ludicrous <coughs> phrase from Miss Prism. Just as Miss Prism's response to the news of Ernest's death. What a lesson. I trust he will profit by it. Um, that whole kind of, you know, the, the sense in which that kind of morality is also incredibly vicious in its own way and completely ludicrous as a way of improving people. Um, or mocking Victorian sentimentality. So Wilde's response to the news of the death of Little Nell. 
It would take a man with a heart of stone not to laugh at the death of Little Nell. Um, he's always kind of pushing back against those kind of models of literature. And in that sense, look at the last section of The Soul of Man Under Socialism. It's a whole, in a sense, manifesto devoted to attacking public opinion as a valid force over art. So again, absolutely opposite to where Nordau's um, locating art and its value. The artist instead, in Wilde's opinion, is the supreme individualist. Any association, he asserts, between the work of art and the artist is invalid. You cannot judge the artist by the work of art that's produced. Instead, and any kind of criticism of the work of art in moral or health terms as things like morbid, unhealthy, exotic, all of those kind of terms, common critical terms at that point, moral disapproval, are all invalid and are seen as wild as simply expressing fear of the new, fear of innovation, fear of moving beyond established guidelines and traditions. And in that sense, there's a way in which you can read the soul of man and socialism as basically a manifesto for modernism. Listen to this. The one thing that the public dislike is novelty. Any attempt to, to extend the subject matter of art is extremely distasteful to the public. And yet the vitality and progress of art depend in a large measure on the continual extension of subject matter. The public dislike novelty because they are afraid of it. It represents to them a mode of individualism, an assertion on the part of the artist that he selects his own subject matter and treats it as he chooses. The public are quite right in their attitude. Art is individualism. And individualism is a disturbing and disintegrating force. Therein lies its immense value. The fact is the public make use of the classics of a country as a means of checking the progress of art. They degrade the classics into authorities. They use them as bludgeons for preventing the free expression of beauty in new forms. They are always asking a writer why he does not write like somebody else, or a painter why he does not paint like someone else, quite oblivious to the fact that if either of them did anything of the kind, he would cease to be an artist. And that thing, think about the response to, be it the Impressionist, be it the Post-Impressionist, be it Cubism, the works of Picasso, Matisse and so on. Think of the music of Wagner, Stravinsky, Kandinsky. I mean, there's so many of these ones. And that kind of response of fear and disgust and anger that greeted a lot of their work, that's what Wilde's arguing for, the freedom to innovate and to move away from classical established forms. Now, the work of Wilde that most clearly bridges this sort of gap, a conceptual gap in many ways, artistic gap between the Victorian era and the modern era, between what we see as Victorian art and work and modernist art and work, is probably his play Salome. <coughs> it's one that very, very clearly has a foot in both camps. It was inspired by literary movements and works of the 1880s and 1890s, and, and it massively inspired a whole host of experimental innovative works going into the, 19th, into the 20th century. Salome was first written in French in 1891 with a biblical subject matter and it's highly stylized. It was refused a license on that basis of the biblical sub subject matter. It was refused a license for public performance in 1893. So there was a performance planned, a production planned with Sarah Bernhardt in the lead role of Salome, but it was refused a public license for performance. It's written as a symbolist work, strongly inspired by the work of Baudelaire, Les Fleurs du Mal, with its atmosphere of exoticism, sinister beauty, its challenges to conventional morality, and also the ideas of correspondence, um, of the correspondence between smells, 
colours, sounds, sights, um, music, and the rhythms of poetry and images. And the idea that they, all of these can not just converge and merge, but actually have equivalences between them. That's a huge, those theories were huge of synesthesia and correspondence were a huge influence on, for example, the opera and works of Wagner and the painting of Kandinsky. So while it's absolutely joining in with some of the fundamental artistic theories and so on that lie behind early and later modernism. The work at Salome is also hugely influenced by the theatre of Maurice Metterlinck, Belgian playwright who wrote La Princesse Malène, Pelias et Mélissande, L'Intruse, Les Aveugles. Um, they're a kind of minimalist, very highly stylized language, poetic works, which are a huge influence in lots, on lots of later theatre, through Singh and all the way through to Beckett. There's a great book on that, um, The Irish Drama of Europe by Catherine Worth, that looks at the way in which Metalink kind of helped shape 20th century theatre. Other influences on Salome reaching back into the 19th century, Flaubert's Herodias, one of his Trois-Contes, three tales that were collected, um, which is a sort of short story, very jeweled, exotic, um, full of archaisms in different ways, and a huge emphasis on style for its own sake, a kind of intensity of language that's almost emotionally detached from its subject matter. That's a huge, it becomes enormously important on lots and lots of later writing. Um, and Wilde's kind of clearly paying homage to that, as he is to um, Mallarmé's poem Erodiat, which is another very clear influence, especially in the kind of characterising of Salome within the poem. And Wilde himself addressed Mallarmé as cher maître, dear master. Um, so there's very kind of clear homage going on there. And the other thing that the play's rooted in is a th thought, systems of thought behind French symbolism, a lot of which were about the, the primacy of imagination over reality, over physical reality, the importance of the life of the imagination and the mind, um, the importance of subjectivity, illusion, um, projection, the internal life of passion as being more important than the external life of physical fact and the style of the French symbolist, obscurity, language which becomes opaque, not translucent, where description is transformation rather than a neutral delivery. And that's something I want to give, to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, and let's hope it works. Supposedly, I just have to hit play. Is it going to work? Come on. Just listen to this excerpt. Um, if you can hit the lights at the back, that'd probably really help. Thank you. And come down into the valley. 
voice of the Lord God. Thy body is hideous. There we are. You get the message. <laughs> um, if you have the lights again at the back, that would be brilliant. Thank you. You see what I mean about uh, a language that's not translucent. It's a language that's transformative, that's kind of an object in itself, if you see what I mean. It's jeweled, it's encrusted, it's solid, it's about itself. It's about the act of seeing and transforming. Um, it's not illustration or representation. It's language itself in that form. And also, see that in conversation with all sorts of issues within modernism about the possibility of language being representation. The whole fundamental challenge to realism that's contained in modernism. In that sense, French symbolism is one of the major stepping stones towards modernism, one of the major contributors to the development of a lot of modernist theories. And you get that idea, that obscurity, the transformative gaze and so on. It's all there. It's part of French symbolist theatre. And it's there in world's own directions for how the play should be produced. So he's got a whole load of ideas he talks about, about how it should be done. One is that all the characters should be in different forms of yellow, from palest yellow to deepest orange. Another is that the different characters in the play should be in different kind of representative colours. 
So, for example, Salome should be dressed in green, like a poisonous green lizard. Um, and one of my favourites is the idea that for each emotion in the play, there should be braziers of perfume down at the front, which will release a different perfume for each emotion. Um, now, this wonderful extravagant design concepts absolutely fit with cutting-edge avant-garde theatre at that time. So, in Paul Faure's theatre, um, there was a production at the Théâtre d'Art in 1891. There was a production of the Song of Songs, and you can hear the echo of the Song of Songs just in that excerpt there in the language. And in that production, it was an experiment in synesthesia. So there were different letters, different colours, different sounds projected simultaneously together with different scents. Um, but you can work out the fundamental problem in the whole brazier of perfume thing. Um, you can imagine if we reduce, it, um, if there were an emitting for each different, um, I don't know, paragraph subject in this lecture, I let out a different um, smell from my braziers of perfumes. They would mingle extremely efficiently in the lack of air conditioning in this lecture theatre. And you end up with one mulch, which is exactly what happened in the um, Théâtre d'Art. Um, there is a certain problem to using perfume as a part of your scenic production concept. Now, the legacy of Salome, the production history of Salome, absolutely fits with this kind of experimentalism. So think through some of the most famous images connected with the plays, which are the illustrations done by Aubrey Beardsley. And that kind of minimalist art, look at the illustrations both for the idea of the figure of wild that you see in the moon in there, and you see as the ma master of ceremonies within Beardsley's illustrations. There's a lot there about that idea of the self-consciousness of the art form, the conversation about where the author's located in relation to it. Also the ways that between representation and design in those illustrations, it's pretty much impossible to separate the two, just as the post-impressionists start moving to this kind of blending of representation and design and a challenge to any kind of differentiation between them. And then performances of the play. In 1896 was the first performance. I mean, even the very earliest, the 1893 performance that was planned was very clearly non-naturalist in lots of ways. Sarah Bernhardt was 49 when she was meant to be playing Salome. So it's obviously about the transformative gaze in lots of ways when you've got her as the young princess. 1896, the first performance was put on in Paris by Lunier Poe in the Théâtre de l'Oeuvre. And again, it's one of the absolute cutting-edge avant-garde theatres of Paris. In 1908, um, there was a Russian production of Salome at the Komisaryevska Theatre in St. Petersburg with a stage set resembling a vast vagina. Um, in 1905, you have Richard Strauss's opera Salome based on the play. Um, 1917, there was a production at the Komerny Theatre in Moscow with cubist designs and costumes. Again, it's absolutely cutting edge. Um, one of my favourites, 1918, um, Maud Allen. To, you know, it was a huge sensation in London with her modernist free-form dance of the dance of Salome, which she did in a kind of pearl-jeweled bra and so on. And a sign of how far the sexuality of the play continued to be troubling, um, a guy called Pemberton Billing, an MP called Pemberton Billing, invade against the sort of sexual display that was included in Salome and argued, this is 1918, that it was part of a kind of German um, fifth column attempt to undermine the morals of English society and kind of thereby win the war. Um, and he wrote this, uh, this article in the paper about the idea that Maud Allen was part of this sort of German fifth column under the title Cult of the Clitoris. Um, 
she brought prosecution for libel, and part of his defence was, was the idea that saying she, he'd libeled her by calling her a lesbian and all the rest of it. Um, part of the defence was that if she knew what a clitoris was, then she must ergo be a lesbian. Um, the whole thing is fantastic, and just as the icing on the cake, um, Lord Alfred Douglas was part of Pemberton Billings' defence. Um, so the whole thing is just too good to be true. Um, in 1977, there was a Lindsay Kemp's famous all-male production of the play. And this one, what you've got, what I was showing you, um, is 1988 Stephen Burkhoff production of the play, in which pretty much everything is mined. So it was all played at half speed, as you can tell, with that very jeweled language. But also everything from Salome's dance as a kind of mimed striptease in which no clothes are revealed, through to her holding the head, where you can absolutely see the head, but it's just her hands held out. So it becomes about the imagination of the audience, your projection into that space as much as anything else. And in that sense, Salome absolutely crosses this divide, supposed divide. And that's true of all of Wilde's essays. The critic as artist, all those, the critic as artist, the decay of lying, pen, pencil and poison, the truth of mass, all gathered together in this collection called Intentions. A wonderful collection of essays in which it is impossible to determine what their intentions are. Impossible. They're written, so many of them, either in paradoxical form or dialogue form, in a way that discovering what they're meant to mean, where to locate authorial view, becomes pretty much impossible. All sorts of deceptive things are happening or complicated things that in that sense are about engaging with contemporary dialogues, but also in dialogue with you, the reader. So one of the things you're having to do is negotiate the form. Now, just as an example of one way in which those essays are engaging with contemporary debates, and absolutely right down to the kind of references and quotations and words and so on geared into them, I just want to give you one example, which is The Critic as Artist, first titled The True Function and Value of Criticism, A Dialogue. Now, that essay advocates criticism as an expression of the critic's personality, as more creative than creation as is bewildered. So it's argued by, when I say the essay argues, what I mean is Gilbert within the essay argues and his friend Ernest responds to. So be very, very careful of taking it that Gilbert is wild in that sense and that the essay argues that. So the essay stages an argument that whether the essay itself is arguing it is a simplifying of that process and the form that it's taking. So the bewildered Ernest sums up his friend Gilbert's argument. You have told me many strange things tonight, Gilbert. You have told me that it is more difficult to talk about a thing than to do it, and that to do nothing at all is the most difficult thing in the world. You have told me that all art is immoral and all thought dangerous, that criticism is more creative than creation, and that the highest criticism is that which reveals in the work of art what the artist had not put there, that it is exactly because a man cannot do a thing that he is the proper judge of it, and that the true critic is unfair insincere and not rational. Now, Wilde here is engaging with Matthew Arnold's essay, The Function of Criticism at the Present Time. And Ma Arnold had argued, so, so in that essay, Arnold argues for the importance of the critic being disinterested, being fair, being unbiased, being precise, being as objective as being objective. So in a phrase which Wilde quotes later in effect, Matthew Arnold argued first in, on translating Homer and then repeats it in his essay on the function of criticism that the primary purpose of criticism is, quote, to see the object as in itself it really is. 
And Arnold refers with confidence throughout this essay to universe, supposedly universally recognisable um, absolute values of truth, excellent wisdom, the best that is there is in thought and art, often capitalised as well. Now, this is taken up by Walter Pater. So Walter Pater, in um, his work, Studies in the History of the Renaissance, often just known as the Renaissance, refers back, he again theorises what it is to be a critic, and instead of arguing for, obje for objectivity and impersonality, he offers a different version of what it is to respond to the world around you. So, he says, experience, already reduced to a group of impressions, is ringed round for each one of us by that thick wall of personality through which no real voice has ever pierced us on its way to us or from us to that which we can only conjecture to be without. Every one of those impressions is the impression of an individual in his isolation, each mind keeping as a solitary prisoner in his own dream of a world. And he concludes, therefore, because you're imprisoned in this self in this wall of personality, that the closest you can get to knowing the object is to know one's own impression as it really is. Now, while deliberately references that debate, so what you've got is one critic answering another critic, Wilde's response to that is the idea of, as I sum it up, have a look at the, the quote, is to sum up the critic's job as not to attempt objectivity, despite this wall of personality, but rather to see the object as in itself it really is not. So he's re... Do you see what I mean? That's a quote that's like disobedience is man's original virtue. It's a quotation that's a re-quotation, a misquotation, a distortion, a quotation, a statement that's in tension with other statements, that's in dialogue with it, just as the essay is in dialogue form itself. Um, and so he talks about the fact that to see the object in itself, it really is, as this, as Matthew Arnold, who references in a wonderfully kind of florid way as having trodden the Cumnor fields and so on, has misunderstood what criticism is about, which is in its essence purely subjective and seeks to reveal its own, most secret, its own secret and not the secret of the other. For the highest criticism deals with art not as expressive, but as impressive purely. Not, be, not only being more creative than creative, and to see the object as in it really is not, but also that the work, the crit to the critic, the work of art is simply a suggestion for a new work of his own that need not necessarily bear any obvious resemblance to the thing it criticises. The one characteristic of a beautiful form is that one can put into it whatever one wishes and see in it whatever one chooses to see. And the beauty that gives to creation is universal and aesthetic element, makes the critic creator in his turn, and whispers a thousand different things that were not present in the mind of him who carved the statue or painted the panel. Think about this, what this does, it's a celebration of individualism, and individualism at the absolute heart of modernism. Each mind is a different world. Think of George Orwell's um, A Hanging. Think of the celebration of multiple points of view that's there in Joyce's Ulysses, in Wolves to the Lighthouse, in Conrad's Nostromo, all of those. And Conrad's We Dri Live as We Dream Alone, which is a kind of slightly pessimistic rewrite of Pater. In that sense, so many look at the, other, look at the decay of lying as a challenge to realism. A challenge to realism where he critiques things like Zolaist naturalism and so on as a reduction of imagination to facts, as doing what literature is not meant to be doing. Not in a kind of conservative, reactionary, back to uh, the idea that, that art shouldn't be dealing with the drunken and the poor and all the sordid aspects of life. Wilde always argues that everything 
is a subject matter for art. There is nothing that art is not allowed to describe, but rather the idea that this whole project of realism is fundamentally flawed. It's there in that we transform the world we look at, that life imitates art more than art imitates life. In other words, as that it's art that actually conditions the way we see the world. And he wonderfully exaggerates that to the idea that um, sunrises and mists and all the rest of it never occurred until the Impressionists painted them. And so on. So it's a wonderful kind of, he'll always take his ideas to the point of absurdity, which is where you, as a reader, have to actively start thinking. You cannot be a passive reader of Wilde. He works on a kind of dialectical method all the way through with the reader, not just in the dialogue between them. Wonderful statements in Solomon under socialism. Our one duty to history is to rewrite it. Think about the statement. So what, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect as a description of the method that's there in T.S. Eliot's tradition and the individual talent. It's there in Virginia Woolf's kind of subversive pageant of history at the end of Between the Acts. It's there in Ulysses's rewriting of Irish myth and history. It's there in so many of the modernists sense that they can rewrite the past as much as refiguring it through the vision of the present. In that sense, what I'd argue with Wilde's essays is that what you have there is Wilde as a kind of midwife to modernism. It's absolutely about preparing, offering, validating so many of the ideas that are absolutely central to all of the most important artistic movements of the 20th century. It's Wilde as casting off the shackles of the Victorian era and opening it out to the iconoclasm, the intellectual freedom, the innovation and the individuality that's at the heart of modernism. Thank you.